Hi! Women Leaders has grown into the age of sponsorship and this episode is sponsored by the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union. This important German foundation is affiliated with the National Green Party and the European Alliance 90 The Greens. With a strong commitment to ecology, gender democracy, equal rights for minorities and empowering migrants, they advocate for a world that values equality. The Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union represents the foundation in Brussels, actively shaping the future of the European project and its global role. For those interested in EU politics and policies, they're your go-to resource for information and engagement. And they are, of course, on Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. All links are attached to the short notes of this podcast. Many thanks to the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union for supporting our podcast, which helps us bring ever more inspiring conversations with women leaders. All opinions expressed in this podcast reflect the views of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union. Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. We're in a world of disorder. The Russian war of aggression against Ukraine is well into its second year. As of October 7th and the horrendous attacks by Hamas on Israel, the Middle East is on fire. Africa is experiencing a swathe of coups and China and the US are metaphorically crossing swords, not least over Taiwan, but more fundamentally over world dominance and the multilateral system of world government created after the Second World War and led by the US. The EU and NATO have intervened strongly in Ukraine and spoken strongly about the Middle East, while the UN appears weak, not least because its core decision-making body, the Security Council, has become paralysed by vetoes of its five permanent members. The opinions and voices of Latin America have also not always been heard in these fast-moving events, which is very necessary, as nearly 10% of the world population lives there, and the opinions in the region are hugely important in shaping both global opinion and the multilateral system. To better understand these perspectives, we have two excellent women with us. Jessica Feta is currently a senior fellow and lecturer in the Jackson School of Global Affairs at Yale University, where she teaches development in Latin America and the Caribbean and about the United Nations. In 2021, she retired from the UN system after a distinguished 30-year career that spanned the development, peace and humanitarian pillars. With her, we have Maria Angela Olguin, uh, a Colombian politician and diplomat who served as the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Colombia and has also served as a permanent representative of Colombia in the United Nations and as the ambassador of Colombia to Venezuela. Welcome, ladies, and thank you both so much for joining us. As ever, why don't we start with um, what we always love to do in this podcast, which is each of you introducing yourselves briefly. Well, first, uh, Ilana, thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, podcast and especially the opportunity to share the, the floor with you and with Maria Angela. As, as you mentioned, I 
I am currently teaching, which is a new profession for me, a new occupation, I must say. Very happy to, to engage, especially with, with young people, about my earlier life, which was uh, some 30 years at uh, the United Nations. Uh, I started um, as a UN volunteer in Guyana, which was at the time the poorest country in, uh, in my region, in Latin America and the Caribbean. And uh, I was subsequently uh, hired as a staff member into the management track career. And I, I, that took me to nine countries in, in Latin America, where in the, I have represented the United Nations in uh, three times and been in uh, some uh, very landmark countries, like for instance, Haiti after the earthquake. Uh, more recently were, was my, my, last, my last posting as in Colombia during the implementation of, of the peace accords. And I uh, also had some uh, very privileged posting, I must say, like working for Secretary General Kofi Annan and where I was also Assistant Secretary General, Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean. So it's an unusual career because I have spent most of my career in Latin America, um, but uh, in different parts and different countries in, in the United Nations. But I am very happy right now to be in the academic, uh, in the academic world sharing my experience. Well, that's a very, very impressive career, which I am absolutely sure that uh, Maria Angela has much to say about too. Um, please tell us about your background. So thank you very much, Ilana, for this invitation. I, uh, as Jessica said, I'm also very happy to to share with this with her and with you this opportunity to talk about Latin America. Um, I start uh, 30 years ago in the in the public service in Colombia. Uh, first as a sec private secretary of the prosecutor it was something very strange, but was the opportunity to know a little bit more. What happened in this country, unfortunately, as you know, um, many kinds of violences. And then 25 years in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as Vice Minister, Secretary General, Ambassador to Venezuela, Ambassador to the UN. And um, I also was in the bank, in the Latin American Bank of Development. It's not the IDB, the CAC. I opened the office in Argentina, so it was a very nice opportunity to know this, this country. A couple of years there, and then I become Minister of Foreign Affairs, and I spent eight years as a minister in the Santos administration. Um, I was part of of the La Habana uh, peace agreement. I spent a year and a half in in the negotiation part of the negotiation team, and um, and now I retire in two thousand eighteen as in the, in the public service, uh, and now I am much more in the private sector. I am in, in a couple of boards and foundations. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But one from Ecuador, one from Colombia. So the first question I have before we move over to world events, is it easy for women to rise to the top in Latin America or are you amongst a small group of exceptions? Uh, maybe I, I start. You know, in Colombia, the women's are um, much more presence than in other countries. This is my my perception, um, especially in the in the foreign service. Uh, we have many many uh, ambassadors and uh, and and the the people in the in the ministry are are the, the figure is is big in women's. 
Um, but you know, um, when I started in this life uh, 30 years ago, was was different. You know, it's much more difficult, much more. Uh, we have to make much efforts to open doors. Um, now I think the things are are become better for them. Um, but but I I think in Colombia it's quite different from other countries. I don't know if Jessica have the the same impression, um, but this is what I think. Jessica, well, my career has been an international career, and I I have to say that I I belong to a to a generation in in the United Nations where the secretary generals that I have gone through five secretary generals. I have seen the the, the growing commitment of secretary generals to make the United Nations a more uh, a more equitable organization, especially with gender parity. And I think uh, by the end of my career, I must say that we reached that parity, but uh, it was not so when I started, of course, it was uh, still, I, I think by, by the time I, I became resident coordinator uh, representing the UN, the UN had become and had a strive to, to be a more 50-50 women. So in that sense, in our region, however, I'm, I must say that I follow this, even though my case has been different, I follow very much the issues of, of leadership, of political representation of, of women in the region, for instance. And even though Latin America has done a lot and has grown a lot, it's still a long way, right? We have, for instance, we have statistics like uh, uh, less than 30% of women are in cabinets, which in Colombia at some point it was 50%. So that's quite a bit. But when you go down to local governments, for instance, is less than 13% of mayors in Latin America and the Caribbean are, are, are women. In parliamentarians, it's a little bit better. It's 26%, I think. And in the corporate world, is also uh, around those, those. So we still have um, a long way to go, even though it's probably uh, in some countries with some exceptions, you have uh, quite a bit of advancement in representation in leadership of, of, of women in, in, in various areas. I think this, this is changing very much with, with the newer generations. As Maria Angela ha, uh, has said, I think Colombia is very much in the, in the forefront. I would say Argentina, Costa Rica, uh, perhaps Mexico. We still have very few and far between women as presidents, for instance, but more and more women as vice presidents. We're hoping that Mexico will now uh, change that a little bit. But you know, if you notice, the countries that they had a, a woman president, as Brazil or Argentina, have a very a very low representation of women in the cabinets or in, in, the, in the life. So it's just the presidents. Yeah. It's as if they need to compensate. <laughs> they need to compensate. And it's also, I must say, that it's very difficult, Maria Angela, uh, even when when women are in power, are in cabinet positions, are in, in leadership positions, the bar is higher. Still, is, uh, there's a machismo culture that make it difficult also for women. Yeah, I think that that is beginning to change a bit, a bit in parts of the Western world, but I wouldn't say entirely. I really, really wouldn't say entirely. There's still a default to, um, you know, we're based in Brussels. This is the Brussels chapter of WISE, 
and it's dispiriting to see you know how few of nato ambassadors are women how few of eu ambassadors are women these are very top jobs so you know the vast majority of them still go to men and eu ambassadors around the world it's the same thing and actually the un for all that you say how many SRSGs, special representatives of the Secretary General, are women? Exactly. <laughs> At the resident coordinator, which is the, the more still, that, that has actually reached uh, a parity. But in the top, top, top jobs, especially the undersecretary generals, which are most of the SRSGs, indeed, that we still have, we still miss quite a bit of women. Even though there's been, I think, a lot of efforts, but but we need to keep at it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you always need to keep at it. If you see the UN, the, the ambassadors to the UN, when I was ambassador to the UN in 2004, we were 10 or 12. Now, I think it's like 40-something uh, or 50 women ambassadors. So I think... Uh, the things are... It is an improvement, but if you think that there's 193 members of the United Nations, it would be nice to see... Could you imagine, could you imagine 10? <laughs> I could. I absolutely could, because I think, you know, we've all of us been in these positions of you're there as the only woman, and it's either up to you to do something stupid, as you say, you're being held to a higher standard, or to um, just close your eyes and get on with it and let them deal with the fact that you're a woman but there's always a sense there that you know kind of you you have to always be aware of it but let's talk about latin america a minute from the outside latin america always appears very interested in latin america what is it that keeps it so separate often in in global perception as opposed to um is it because it's a whole continent and the countries deal more with each other. Um, but the voice of Latin America is rarely heard on a global stage. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, where, what is the dynamic? I have to say something that is, is strong, but is my, I believe in that, that today Latin America doesn't exist in, in, the, in the global. I mean, we are losing a lot of positions I losing the presence in the world, the interest of the war in Latin America, uh, for many reasons. I think we are we are in, not in a very good moment, uh, political in, in the countries. Um, I think the democracy is losing space in the countries. Uh, I think. Um, the people don't believe in politicians, don't, uh, don't believe anything they say. So it becomes a, a trouble in each country in Latin America. And, um, and this, the insecure violence and things that for the rest of the world is like Latin America doesn't, you know, it's like we are not, um, really in, in a, in a moment for have a, a, a good relationship with the countries. I mean, maybe in trade or, but uh, Latin America is interesting for, for the rest of the world. It, maybe because the world have so many problems, uh, huge ones, that Latin America have a small ones. For us, 
I mean, I, I think that Jessica thinks the same thing. For us, it's a, a big problem, what happened. What happened in, in Salvador, what happened in Ecuador, what happened in Colombia, what happened in Venezuela. For us, it's a huge, a huge, you know, um, situation. You know, we are losing, uh, we, are, we, we are losing power inside and outside. But I, I know that the countries, the 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 European Union or the United States or are in in trouble in the world and now worst. But I think we are not interested. Latin America, and and this is a pity. This is a pity because we 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 work a lot in 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 decades for for change the situation in many countries and for for be attractive for the world. And I think we, we today we are not. That is very strong. I mean, Jessica, do you agree? Look, I, I would say that um, what Maria Angela is saying is, is right, is completely correct. I would add that there's perhaps two, two important factors that have contributed to that. One, I think, is definitely that the next door neighbor, the most important trading partner for, the, for, for Latin America, which is the United States, is the first one who has put its put its eyes as a nation towards the problem of the world across the oceans, and not in its own backyard. Basically, it has not really, uh, at some point, lost its interest or, or Latin America being its next door neighbor. And then there was in the early two thousands, I think, um, a wave, especially of, of a new of a new type of government, especially of left-wing governments that believe very strongly in, in Latin America is, is for Latin Americans. Latin America has, a, 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 I would say, um, a sovereignty that rejected what was called at the time imperialism. And, and that's where the chasm begin to, to, to separate, especially with the United States. I think politically, but I actually think that both the United States and the world should be paying, should be paying attention to Latin America. Um, because for instance, when we talk about the violence and the conflicts that are happening in the world, in Latin America, you have a low, it's like a slow moving crisis. Uh, that already exists, just in violence, in drug trafficking, for instance. Just to give you some, some numbers, if Latin America has about 9% of the world population, it concentrates 33% of the homicides. So even though so the region is the most violent region in, in the world, even though it's a region that doesn't have an armed conflict, the last armed conflict actually finished with Colombia, uh, with the with the peace accord in, in Colombia, but but violence has not subsided in the region. On the contrary, it's getting worse and worse, and you have uh, the drug trafficking and organized crime, which is worse than in that is stronger than many governments, for instance, have more resources than many governments. So it's not as dramatic because you don't have armed. A conflict that makes it to the news, but when you just see the the numbers, is something that the world should be looking at it. 
um, I think also that the, the region unfortunately had a, a, a very good decade, decade in the beginning of the century, but unfortunately that has completely reversed. For instance, it was the region that was most affected by far in the world by COVID-19, which in turn, the region is still not recuperating. So the economy is sluggish, the combine that with severe increase in poverty has, that has actually gone back 30 years is, is affecting also the credibility of governments. So democracy, as, as Maria Angela is saying, is, is right now weakening to the point that people are, are, are not, not only not, don't believe it, but actually they, they start with they, some important parts of, of uh, the population, according to Latino Barometro, think that they would prefer authoritarian regimes. They would prefer, and this I think the world and especially the United States should be paying attention. I absolutely agree with you and I can see that to be the case. I would just add that I think the violence you're talking about is such a fascinating point, but it's also spreading because in Europe, for example, the cocaine wars and the drug wars that are coming from the cocaine are huge and the source of a lot of the cocaine is coming from Latin America. And so I think that this is all about, if you want perceptions of violence and death, you know, death is always contextual. If, if somebody dies in terror or in a war, it's always perceived to be worse than somebody dying in a hospital or, 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 or something like that. But I think your point on violence is a very, very strong one. And just before we move on to world events, I think it would be very interesting to, to just understand better, though, how do you live with violence as a constant backdrop? Jessica, you, you raised the violence issue. Well, this is the one of the important things. For instance, I live in, in, in I am from, from Ecuador. Ecuador used to be a very a peaceful country. Um, still was between Colombia and Peru, the two and, and, and Bolivia and a little bit further down, there are the big producers of, especially of cocaine, what that is making this a uh, very violent. And in Central America, where I also lived in, in El Salvador, uh, this is also for various reasons, but also related to gang violence connected to, to organized drug trafficking, to organized crime. Uh, people had learned to live in a way with that, but it's, it's something that was growing, not to mention in Colombia, but I, I will leave that for Maria Angela to, to comment a little bit. But what is happening, for instance, in, in countries like Ecuador, like Chile, uh, or, or Argentina, or even Uruguay, that organized crime is actually going south, going to these countries where perhaps there was less persecution or less capacity from the public forces to pursue drug trafficking or organized crime, they are now beginning, the perception of insecurity is even worse because people have not been prepared and governments have not been prepared to confront this contrary to, to areas such as, I mean, to countries like Colombia or like, like Mexico. And, and therefore the fear in the population is, is stronger. So again, this is affecting the governance of, of uh, uh, because people feel that they are not being, I mean, the governments are not solving their problems and may, many citizens are beginning to take this in their own hands. So violence leads to more violence. And for instance, there are policies like uh, people can own a gun when guns are 
largely part of this uh, violence as well. So in, in general, I think um, some countries have learned to, to live with that, but in, in, this is also a moving target because in some countries, violence has been coming down and in others uh, have, have been going up. But then you have countries like, for instance, in Central America and El Salvador that have adopted very draconian uh, measures but the population is very accepting of this, accepting because at the end of the day, they don't care if it's that comes with some violations of human rights. The, the reality is that violence has come down and this is what the population are, are asking and asking for, right? And you see in other countries that are not able to do this. Governments are, are, are very weak right now. Is it the same perspective for you? Uh, yes, I, I think so. You know, for decades, Colombia had, you know, the, the worst uh, violence in uh, in the whole Latin America. We we had this armed conflict, and um, and we suffered for for many many years of maybe fourteen years, and uh, and the life become uh, become difficult, very difficult. You know, you cannot go out pro from Bogota, for example, or for the capitals. Uh, you know, twenty kilometers because they they just could be kidnapped or or whatever, and when we always believed that the peace process could change that, and and I think uh, at the beginning was a good thing. Uh, the the figures of of the violence uh, just uh, down in in a very important in a very important percentage, um, but unfortunately. Uh, the the last government didn't implement it, uh, the peace agreement as they had to do it, and now my my view with this government is that he wants another kind of peace, the the total peace and the peace with the ELN, but the the peace process, the agreement of the peace process, we have to you know implement it and 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 if you don't implement it the violence is going to continue and this is what happened uh we are we are seeing in in this year or the or two years uh, they are become very complicated and the worst thing is that we we always believe that the the day that colombia doesn't have this violence and um the narco traffic that is another part of the violence, the narco-traffic, would go out to other countries. And this is what happened today in Ecuador, what happened in, in Chile, uh, in other countries in the South, as Jessica said, or or in, in Central America that continues, on, or, or Mexico. So the point of narco-traffic is something that I don't know why. You know, it's an issue that for the United States it's vital. They have to. They have to do something much more aggressive, because the country are weak for confront. You know these cartels. They are so big, so so rich. This is why I think is the countries are 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 just are in a in a very weak democracy, because we cannot confront as we have to do it. And what you see in Salvador that is incredible because the people, you know, the population of many countries in the region, it do is incredible. But you see what the people think in Chile, 
is that they, you know, the Bukele style is what they want. And it's horrible because, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, against the human rights, against everything. But at the end of the day, you understand why the people need something different. Because the traditional way to confront the narco-traffic and the cartels didn't work. So it's like, you know, the violence, the only way is to put all these people in jail, wherever, you know, the, the, the human rights is not important, the human is not important. And, and this is, this is I, 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 say, I, I believe that Latin America is in a big crisis. This is a crisis of disorder, though. So this actually moves us slightly into the more global perspective, because to many people, what's happening in Ukraine is an attempt to impose disorder upon it. Um, but the perception, at least from Europe, is that if you want um, Latin America doesn't care. Even though the UN um, gives legitimacy to everyone, and even though, and even though, then at the end of the day, that's their problem, Russia's their problem, it's somewhere else. Yeah, they want to take over Ukraine, but what the hell, we've got our own problems. Um, so is this also a crisis of legitimacy of uh, the international system? And both of you have been working in, in the international system for a very long time. How is this perceived and why does, as, it, as I say, for me, it's a non-brainer that if somebody's trying, one country invades another country and tries to take it over, then at the very least, that is a, a, um, a violation of the very core idea of sovereignty in, as you know, we all agreed on in the United Nations. So why does it appear not to be a problem at all or not something that Latin American leaders want to talk about? Oh, I was going to say that I, I don't think that Latin America doesn't, doesn't care. In fact, I think Latin America is a, is a scenario where you now see this big, great power competition. So you actually see, for instance, in a moment where you have China becoming a very strong partner for Latin Americans. No, Latin America it lives and has this big dilemma that is dependent on, on commodity on commodities, on petroleum, on minerals, on, on soy, on meat to exports. And, and China is making very big investment, very a very important trading partner. Um, for a while in some countries, Russia is becoming or has become a, a strong partner, especially because also Latin America has uh, even is, is becoming less democratic, but you have some emblematic countries that are authoritarians. No, I would say among them, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Cuba and, and, and sometimes others uh, fluctuate a little bit in the border. And I think these, these countries are also becoming very uh, strong partners with, with Russia or with even other countries, like for instance, uh, Iran is a, is a trading partner of some countries in, in Latin America. So uh, Latin America does take, I think, not as a region, and this is a, a, this is a problem because it's not even though Latin America is a continent, it's not a unified continent, but they do take, take positions, unfortunately, uh, at least politically, politically, uh, whether they support, and I think we have seen a little bit of that in the, in the conflict of Israel-Palestine, where you have some strong voices in support of Palestine and some strong voices also uh, against Israel. So I think uh, it, it's not that it doesn't care, probably has too many problems to be 
that involved, but I think in, in fact it's because some of the world players, especially I would say the big powers like Russia and China are very present in Latin America. Um, and therefore I think uh, at some point our countries will have to take some 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 positions. I don't know, Maria Angela, what, what, what do you think? But the the thing that become complicated for the United States it was the presence in China in Latin America. So for them, uh, it become much more important that the China is not present and has no projects and don't have a relationship with with Latin America than than the really problems in Latin America. So the minister, you know, the secretary of state comes to these countries and say you don't have, you you can have. Any contact, any relationship with China, and and this is like the you know the the treatment is like with the children, so, and it's it's totally different, you know. My my view is uh, we we in the case of Colombia we don't have a be, a very big relation with China, but it's is and and I think Ecuador either, but no, with Korea was a little bit more, but they have they have a strong relationship in in trade uh, you know that chile is the first uh, partner is china in the trade and uh, and argentina and brazil i don't know how it's, it's in the case of, of central america but in south america they have a strong partner in uh, in chile in uh, i think in bolivia in argentina but my point is for the states for the united states is more important Important that the China is not present here than the really problems in Latin America that we have to face. And Russia is present in the relation with Venezuela. Uh, you know, the crisis in Venezuela is almost 20 years and the UN never become really in the problem. You know, confront what happened in Venezuela for 20 years. Now it's is part of of the Latin America because there are now there are many countries many countries that they are you know the the right governments that believe uh, that uh, this is a, an internal problem in, in Venezuela, but all the regional mechanism that we had, that we had in for decades and especially in the in the decade of twenty thousand that Lula make a, uh, made a, a huge effort to try to organize the mechanisms. Uh, to do things together was jeopardized by the Venezuelan problem. It becomes an ideological situation in each meeting of CELAC, of UNASUR, of uh, OAS, and, uh, and there are nothing to work together. And if you don't work together against the narcotraffic, the violence, because it's in many countries, um, it's very difficult that one country can do something alone. So this is so important that we reach these agreements, this consensus together. Now is uh, disappear all this mechanism. Basically, ladies, you're saying that um, this is as much about the absence of global leadership or world leadership or a world leadership gone wrong. And at the same time, China challenging that world leadership in any case and Russia trying to, but is too weak, but is happy to back anybody who will challenge it. And uh, weaknesses within the region itself and therefore there's no coherent voice. Is that a good way of summarizing what you're saying? I, I would say that there is there has been a lack of a strong leadership within 
the region, right? That brings the region coherently. In fact, in the early 2000s, I think we did see some cohesion with President Lula, President Chavez. Uh, I think uh, there were actually stronger voices, even though there was a, a left-leaning uh, group, but still there were stronger voices and stronger leaders. Um, and right now, I think it's is less so. I think it's is moving, but you know, on, on the positive note, I think. So if we talk about uh, global issues like conflict, maybe Latin America has its own things and, and you see this, this uh, power competition in, in our region. But on the other hand, Latin America has been a, a strong voice, for instance, in issues like uh, climate change, in issues like the sustainable development goals. I would say that here, Maria Angela is one, had, was a big voice in that when she was uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. But for instance, in, in, in climate change, in, in adding the, the importance of the conservation of, of, of the Amazon, that is emerging as a stronger now. I think for some reason, for some time, we, uh, a few recent years, we lost that. But I think there still were some important voices, including coming from Colombia, from Ecuador, from the Amazon countries, some of the Amazon countries, about, for instance, uh, the conservation of the Amazon, the conservation of, um, uh, of coastal and marine areas. So in that, in that sense, that is a very important global issue that also makes Latin America very vulnerable but also has very important, let's say, global assets like the Amazon, in that it needs to come together uh, as a service for the rest of the world. And I think we are seeing a little bit more of that. And this is important, I think, uh, something important to say. Another thing that, that, that in my opinion, is, is happening in, in the region is, for instance, migration, right? Migration that probably the migration stays in the continent, mostly, but also stayed in Latin America, a lot of it, and many countries came together to, when the Venezuelan migration crisis, which is still not over for sure, and it comes now from other countries, but that the region came together into at least solving or, or at least accepting the, 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 some countries more than others, like Colombia, for instance. But I think these are some, some things that we see that the, the, the region does come together in, in some of these global issues. So Jessica, you look at it from one way, uh, Maria Angela, you look at it from another way, but we are going to run out of time in a minute. And there's one more issue I would really like you both to address, given your immense experience in the United Nations. Why has it become so weak to your mind? And is there anything that can be done to, to repair it? Even though you had your entire career there, Jessica, I'm gonna start with Maria Angela first. Um, you know what? I think the the Security Council, the permanent members, have become so complicated. You know, the time that they at least could have conversation and uh, and arrive to consensus in 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 situation in the world, the UN and the Secretary General, I mean the Secretary General and the Secretariat General, works uh, quite. You know. Maybe not bad, but when you start to have such huge difference between those countries, um, they have the situation that they are in a positive sides, that the veto power, this is the huge problem in the Security Council, 
when you have the world that you have today, what happened in Ukraine, what happened now in in the Gaza Strip, and there are no uh, unified voice in the Security Council, it's quite incredible. And and this is something very difficult for the Secretary General, because you know they can make many statements, many things that I I think in Ukraine they they don't be some presence since the since the beginning. He he had to be much more present since the beginning. But but you know they 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 he said he said in the interview that they don't have any power because the power is in the Security Council. Just start with something like this. It's so difficult that the UN could do, do something if the Secretary General believe and feel that they don't have power. So um, I think this is the point, the veto and the Security Council. I think that the United Nations reflects the world that we have right now. It's a divided world, it's a, a competing power, different regions that have their own their own problems. So I think that's basically, it's part of the fragmentation of, of the United Nations as a forum where countries come together. But the United Nations is also an institution. And in institution, I believe it has, still has, and that's why we need to unpack a little bit what parts of the UN are not working well. And I agree completely with, with Maria Angela that perhaps the part of peace and security of this world body like the Security Council that is supposed to actually deflect conflicts. And is when you see that one of their key members is actually you know, promoting a conflict. But other parts of the United Nations, I think, still are working. For instance, I, I, I think the humanitarian perhaps is too much of a humanitarian work because basically there's so many humanitarian crises in the world. But for instance, we see in Ukraine, okay, so the, the, the political arm of the UN has not been able to do anything about it, but who was there to, to support the, the, the refugee crisis from Ukraine to Poland or, from, or trying to do something about the, the exports of, of grain or to, for instance, restoring the capacities of, of, uh, of the government to allow it to run a country while fighting a war. It was the United Nations. And we see a little bit of, of the same in, in the Gaza-Israel. While the political part, in fact, it has not been able to, the, the United Nations as a forum, as, a, as the countries come together and do something about the conflict of Palestine and Israel, has not been able to, to advance who is there trying to to open the humanitarian corridors do something is is the is the humanitarian part of of, of the un and i think the the development is another another side i think that ultimately uh, came together for instance in in responding to the to the crisis that was created uh, during and after the pandemic so i think we need to unpack a little bit of what parts of of, of the un are weakening what parts are stronger and is it still relevant? I think that probably the, the organization needs to, to look at its pillars. I, I we simplify it in the three pillars, but probably more of that. But I think the, the peace and security one, which is probably the one that, that most people look for, is weakening, but it's also because it reflects what the world is, is the, the, the countries that make that pillar, especially that make that pillar work, are not working together either. Thank you both very much. I, I, I think there's much um, to be said for your position, Jessica. But nonetheless, if you read the Charter of the UN, the point is 
peace. Peace and security. And security. And um, development and human rights. Yes. <laughs> but that's what we've become very good at doing. Because whilst the UN, to my mind, was created as a result of the two world wars, it evolved in the Cold War. And it became the platform of the Cold War. That's where it was all played out. And then we were suddenly, as an ex-UN hand, you know, we were suddenly in 1990 meant to jump in and become exactly the institution that had been envisaged in 1945. But the, it was impossible. It was never going to happen in that way. But I do think that there was a moment in which there was a will for better things to happen. And that moment has passed uh, for sure. But Yes, the institutions of the UN, or the I think a lot of the organizations of the UN have become very successful and very important. But the core peace and security part of it is not. And we, we have to address that. How? I don't know. One of you has an idea of how we can address it, but I feel that there is a failure there. We need agreement as a success general. Well, let's start campaigning now. Women are more, more consensus builders. But I also think it's, it's, it's way overdue, this reform, this enlargement of the Security Council, these, some of these tools that are no longer, that even though politically means something, uh, it doesn't really do anything like the veto, for instance. But I think it needs to be more representative as well. I mean, this even if the vetoes are are still there, they need to be more representative of of the world as it is. And I think, uh, especially the the core of the United Nations, which is the Security Council, is no longer becoming representative of, of what the world is today. So I think it just needs to be updated, hopefully. But unfortunately, it depends on the very same that need to reform themselves to reform the UN. It's what they call Turkey's voting for Christmas. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> But I think that the next rotation for Secretary General is Latin America, is it not? The last time was for Latin America, but the, they elected a, a European man. I was a, a woman for Latin America, and I was elected a man from Europe, so... We don't know. It's supposed to be Latin America, supposed to be a, a woman, uh, but it's in three years, so we will see what happens. But for the moment, uh, my feeling is that the Secretary General have to have more presence in the conflicts. Well, we undoubtedly have two excellent candidates for the Latin American rotation when it comes around to be the next UN Secretary General. And that is undoubtedly our two wonderful guests today, Jessica Fayetta and Maria Angela Walkin. And thank you very, very much for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels, so reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, and with my friend and colleague, Florence Ferrando, who does all the technical work, and we'll be back very soon with a very great conversation.